Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is September 26th, 2021. It's our niece's birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Yes. She's a cool 17-year-old. So I don't think she listens to the podcast, but if you do, happy birthday. Happy birthday, for sure. On the shows today, I looked at This Week, Face the Nation, and Meet the Press. I looked at Fox News Sunday and State of the Union. And most of the topics I felt like centered around infrastructure, immigration, and a little bit of COVID. How about you? Mine were basically only those two topics. Which there, two? Was I said three? Oh, n- <laughs> infrastructure and immigration. Got it. And a little bit about police reform. Yes. But I had practically nothing about COVID. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I had COVID. There was actually also some foreign affairs and intelligence interviews. Like each show had like an extra, not rando, but like topic that is not about current events exactly this week. Margaret Brennan spoke to somebody from Turkey, and then George Stephanopoulos talked to a former intelligence officer under the Trump administration. Like, there was just, like, extra interviews, at least on my shows. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking. I was like, did anyone even talk about the boosters? It was barely talked about on the panel on Fox News Sunday, and the word wasn't even spoken on State of the Union, which is crazy. But I do know that Jake Tapper had a pretty COVID-heavy episode last week based on what you said in Polylog. That's true. All right, Naomi, that takes us to quality questionable. Did you have a quality or questionable moment this week? Questionable. How about you? I had a quality moment. Let's start with something positive. All right. So this is on State of the Union. Jake Tapper spoke with Primala Jayapal. She is the Democratic representative from the state of Washington. And she is a top member of the House Progressive Caucus. She was there to talk to Jake Tapper about the negotiations ongoing, particularly in the House this week, where you have some moderates standing up and saying they don't necessarily stand for everything in the reconciliation bill, the Democrats' reconciliation bill. And then you have the progressives saying, well, if that doesn't get passed, then we're maybe not going to support the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So lots of discussion on those topics. And Jake Tapper brought up this question, which I felt like Jayapal had an excellent answer on. Um, Some moderates have suggested uh, that the means testing, meaning only providing for people uh, moderate to lower income for the child tax credit for child care for a tuition-free community college, yeah. that that would be an idea instead of just providing it for everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody who makes what I make doesn't, or makes what you make, doesn't yeah. need free childcare necessarily. Right. 
The thing about that is, let's look at the rental assistance bill, just as an example. We had so many provisions in there to try to make sure that it was only the right people that needed to qualify that the assistance never got out. I mean, it takes somebody three and a half hours to actually get through a form, and that's with help. So ultimately, the best thing we can do is make these programs universal, deliver the benefits as quickly as possible, and make sure that people are actually being able to access it and not being pushed aside by all these requirements. So we can talk about it, but I think everyone has has shown, all the studies have shown, that there isn't some big abuse of these programs going on. And to me, it's about how do we get the benefits out to, quickly to people and not actually put barriers in the way for the people who are most vulnerable and most need that assistance. What an excellent, thoughtful discussion on this topic. I really appreciate Jake Tapper bringing up the issue. And I think Jaya Paul, imagine that she's leaning on studies and data and examples to make her argument rather than just saying, this is what I think. And, you know, the country deserves it or whatever. She's like, actually, there's a really good reason, administrative reason why things should be easy rather than overly complex and stringent. Because when you make things overly complex and stringent, people don't access them. They don't know that they qualify for them. They're not pointed towards them. They don't hear about it. And frankly, a lot of those programs that are so means tested or whatever don't do as well. Like they're not managed as well because people think of that and they're not necessarily funded as well because people think, oh, well, that's only for poor people or people in need or people, people, not people like me, you know, there's just example after example after example that by making something universal as a program, it just makes it so much more available to those who truly need it. So it's really interesting you mention this clip because I'm going to be talking about infrastructure in my main segment, but I had a pretty much a word for word answer that Jaya Paul had given to Margaret Brennan as an excellent answer as to why means testing in the various parts of the human infrastructure bill is questionable to say the least and I thought her specific use of the rental assistance program was really apt because it's in everyone's mind there's still people plagued by trying to access the program and Congress was mad that states weren't done delivering the funds, But right? it was hard for states to do that, right? Exactly. Because it was, they made it so complicated. They exactly. tied it all up. And the state said, look, we don't have all the staff to get on processing all these complex applications. Exactly. There was so many bureaucratic barriers on multiple levels. And so I just thought it was a really effective answer as to why the means test is not great here. All right, Naomi. So now let's get into that questionable material that you said you were bringing to the show. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds way worse. (laughs) My questionable comment observation today is the fact that Megan McCain, former co-host of The View, now a columnist for The Daily Mail, was invited to join the panel on Meet the Press. Now, I get it. There are conservative pundits that are on these panels, but I'm not a fan of this booking for several reasons. First of all, take a listen to how Chuck Todd introduces her at the start of the panel. Welcome back. Panelists here, Amy Walter, editor-in-chief and publisher of the Cook Political Report, NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Leanne Caldwell, Eddie Glaude Jr. of Princeton University, and Megan McCain, columnist for TheDailyMail.com. It's good to have a McCain back on Meet the Press. Thank you. Very much having me. 
it's good to have a McCain back on Meet the Press. What is with that legacy BS? Like, ugh, I... If, if Meghan McCain had written a book recently about the future of the Republican Party and that it's in the hands of Congressman Kinzinger and Congresswoman Cheney and this is the new path, like, fine, right? Like, okay, she is part of, like, she's a Republican thought leader who wants to form a new future for it. But it's, that she hasn't one. And it's just, it, it really makes me feel gross. I feel like... <laughs> This makes me think that Chuck Todd, when he watched the latest Star Wars and learned that Rey is actually a descendant from Emperor Palpatine, he's like, it's good to have a Palpatine back on Star Wars. <laughs> that was <laughs> the weakest part of the Star Wars, like... Well, right, because it I know, I overruled hate that, Ryan Johnson. I hate Johnson's. that they made Rey a descendant of Palpatine. Right. It can be pe- people can be on the shows or she can in- be an orphan and incredible yes. and a Jedi and be a nobody. Yes. Shouldn't okay. just be legacy individuals. And by the way, I'm not saying McCain was Palpatine. I'm just saying <laughs> it is an example. We don't believe in legacy in this household. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so for the actual substantive questionable material, <laughs> the first like longer quote that Megan McCain provides on the panel, first of all. Chuck Todd asked her to do something that she is not, that he has complete access to, and you'll catch it very quickly in a second. And then her answer is just full of mistruths and unsubstantiated claims that are not based in reality. Take a listen. Megan, I want you to play a reporter here for us because you may have the best uh, sense of Kirsten Cinema. I know you have a pretty good personal relationship. What does, we don't, that's the frustration Democrats say. They don't know what Joe Manchin wants. They don't know what his bottom line is, and they don't know what her bottom line is. How would you describe it? Well, I mean, politically in Arizona, I think that's why people like her so much. Just anecdotally, uh, conservatives in my life really like her because, you know, she's holding uh, the line for conservatives in a lot of ways. Um, The question I always have is, uh, you know, for people like Joe Manchin, if it's not him, it's going to be a Republican. So this distaste and this, you know, outward hostility towards moderates in the Democratic Party surprises me. Um, I also was shocked by seeing Senator Booker talking about sort of openly this distrust between progressives and moderates. How the Democratic Party ultimately threads the needle, I don't know. But I will say that President Biden ran on being a moderate, as you said. He ran and won with the help of independent, centrist, you know, Trump uh, wary Republicans. And he is not governing as one. The Build Back Better agenda is the most progressive modern agenda of all time, uh, up to five trillion dollars. And it's not polling well. So I think I'm just confused as why they're doubling down on something that is cratering in the polls right now. Okay, so. This was a long clip, so just to remind you, Chuck Todd opens this question to Megan McCain by saying, Megan, I want you to play a reporter here for us. Ooh, and then next week she'll play a doctor. <laughs> okay, Chuck Todd has access to many of a reporter in the NBC News team. Wait, are they comprised of reporters? And sometimes they're on the panels. Imagine that. <laughs> like... Like, if I was a reporter wanting to get booked on these shows, like, I'd be so upset. Like, so, so upset. Well, clearly, you know, you don't have the right last name. Oh, my gosh. So, so, yeah, that, that makes no sense. And then what she says here also makes no sense. The human infrastructure package is not five trillion. 
I think the original like ultimate wish list that Bernie Sanders put out, I think, was like six trillion. But what is being negotiated right now is three point five. Yes, that's the number we've been having all conversations for weeks upon weeks and it polls very well like what is she talking about there's no specifics here like she doesn't mention what poll she's talking about so apparently you can just say anything and there'll be no pushback and there wasn't you're saying there wasn't right at least not in this moment also can i just mention she doesn't answer the question really about what's in cinema's mind like Chuck yeah. Todd thinks that she's going to say, well, look, I, you know, I have lunch with cinema every other Tuesday and I'll tell you what's in her head. What's in her head is blank. No, nothing like that. Yeah, I think it was on this week. There was an actual reporter on. Oh, man, I'm, I'm kind of regretting I didn't include it now. But she talks about how, again, she's a reporter, so she has this insight, how cinema wants to make sure that the climate change components of the bill stay and... Those are the exact (laughs) sections that are not priorities for Joe Manchin. Right. And so everyone kind of keeps looping them in like they're on the same page about what needs to be cut or what needs to stay. And they're not. Right. So like, how do you negotiate with both of them? Stubborn senators who are not even on the same page. Right. Like that is actually quite interesting. But what Megan McCain is saying here is not interesting and also not true. But I did want to know. Like I said, a a very effective pushback. It was by Eddie Glau Jr. He is from Princeton University. He is a professor who studies and writes a lot about African-American history here in the U.S. And I just thought it was the smartest reply. It was the smartest way to say you're full of shit. I mean, I want to. Yeah. Nothing galvanizes Republicans right now than seeing what happened in Afghanistan, than seeing this giant spending package. I mean, the thing that can unite me with the biggest MAGA person in the world is the build back better progressive agenda. So I do think uh, while it's, uh, you know, uncouth in polite society to say that you would be okay having anything to do with President Trump, there are people that will vote for anything except what's happening right now. And I agree with what you're all saying. I always consider President Trump like Godzilla under the water and the sequel could easily come. But there really are people in the party that I think uh, at the very least will put up a very good fight against him and he is still very powerful in a lot of ways but he is not the kingmaker he once was as we've seen in primaries across the country. The fascinating part about what you just said Megan is that it's a feature of the argument that Kagan is making and that is that there's a loyalty to national party a desire to own the libs to 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 define oneself over and against those folk that you do not want uh, to, to govern. And so you're willing to make a certain kind of choice, yeah. a kind of Faustian bargain that allowed, that unleashed this person into our body politic. What's fascinating? I think it's a bit alarmist. Mm-hmm. I disagree with the way in which he tries to disentangle the history of the Republican Party from yeah. Trumpism. But he's on to something, uh, Chuck. And that is, I'm going to echo Amy. This is calling into question the very foundation yeah of our democracy. If if the body public do not if if the people do not trust yeah. the process, we can't have nothing. We can't what are close elections? So here you have Megan McCain just kind of describing how she is so frustrated by the build back better progressive agenda and that it is a motivation for people like her and other Republicans to join the far right parts of the Republican Party and to vote in anybody. Right. And I just I love Eddie Glaude Jr. here essentially calling out like that's part of the problem. Like you're willing to kind of let this seep into your party and corrupt the very foundation of our democracy. Yeah, exactly. And looping her into that. Right. He's basically saying this is, you know, you've 
you're willing to make that kind of choice and unleash this person into the country, into the body politic, as he says. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes Eddie Glau Jr. is very much the academic and can be very professorial in his comments. But here it was so effective. I'm a fan. And bringing good insight. Absolutely. All right, Naomi, let's get on to the main event. What exactly is the main topic that you're going to be talking about today? And then and then I'll tell you what mine is. I'm talking infrastructure. What are you talking about? I am talking about the migrants crossing the border, the Haitian migrants. Well, let's start there because I just talked a little bit about infrastructure. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to contrast the way the two shows talked about this issue and just kind of dive a little bit into who's covering it well, who isn't covering it well. I think both Jake Tapper and Chris Wallace were flawed in their approach. They definitely brought a lot of their personal baggage and feelings to the conversation. And it's somewhat understandable because people do get very emotional around issues of of immigration in this country on both sides of the aisle and all across the, the political spectrum. But it didn't always provide a really good insight into what's really going on for the audience of either show. And that's not to say that they necessarily distorted the reality or told lies, but that they focused in on little portions of it here and there, and sometimes missed a bit of the big picture. So to begin, let's take a look at Jake Tapper. I want to cover you know, I should say, first of all, they both interviewed the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, and Chris Wallace basically dedicated his entire show to the topic, didn't really talk about anything else except a little bit in the panel. And so there's a little bit more on the Chris Wallace side to cover. But let's begin with Tapper's conversation with Secretary Mayorkas. As the White House focuses on its legislative agenda this week, they're Facing outrage from Democratic lawmakers and activists over the president's immigration policies, the Biden administration has struggled to manage an influx of Haitian migrants at the southern border and images of Border Patrol agents on horseback uh, using reins on their horses uh, while dissuading migrants from crossing over. uh, The president condemned and it's raising more questions about his broader immigration policy. There's Tapper's intro. He goes on in his first question to ask Alejandro Mayorkas about the 30,000 Haitian migrants who crossed over the border in the last two weeks. A lot of them seen huddling under a bridge and a lot of questions regarding those images and later video that we saw of the Border Patrol agents patrolling. So now I want to zoom into one particular question that Jake Tapper asked. And in that first question, Jake Tapper kind of drills down to understand what happened or what is happening to those 30,000 Haitian migrants who were basically apprehended by the Border Patrol. Where, where are they going? What is, what is going on with them? Who's going where and why? As Mayorkas explains, many of them are being deported back to Haiti or other places in South America, even though many of them have not lived in Haiti for many, many years, some of them up to 10 years, after having fleed the country following the 2010 earthquake. So many of them are being deported that in that direction, and their case isn't even being heard, their case for asylum, because of something called Title 42, which was put in place under the Trump administration, 
And it was an ability for the Trump administration to basically say, we are not going to accept anybody uh, or look at anyone for asylum, or we don't have to, because of COVID. You know, there's a public health emergency going on. We can't have people coming in here who could potentially be carrying a virus or a new strain or mutated strain of the virus. So therefore, we're not going to have these folks. And since that rule went into effect in 2020 under the Trump administration, during Trump's time in office, they deported, I think it was something close to 400,000 to 500,000 individuals using that rule. But since Biden has been in office, that rule has remained in place. And up to this point, during Biden's term, they've already deported something like 700,000 migrants under this same existing rule, a rule that many immigration activists have said is, in fact, inhumane and against our principles of asylum. Not really necessary at this point in the pandemic, where in many cases the U.S. has more of the virus circulating than other places in the world. But Biden has persisted with this ruling. So many of folks that were deported, about 10 to 12,000 others are being reviewed. Their asylum cases will be reviewed by a judge. But Tapper kind of hitches on to this idea of the people being deported and deported under Title 42. Take a listen to Tapper's position, which is very often from a moral, humane, inhumane lens. So the Biden administration special envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, he resigned this week saying that the Biden administration's decision to deport thousands of Haitians, as you just mentioned, was, quote, inhumane and counterproductive. Now, you said Friday, quote, we do not conduct ourselves in an immoral way. But how do you respond to people who say that forcing migrants to return to a country uh, that's dealing with political instability, widespread poverty, the aftermath of a devastating earthquake, a place that many of them haven't been in a decade, that that is immoral, and that moreover, the Biden administration continuing to implement Trump-era policies that Biden and others called immoral when running for president is also immoral. So I just wanted to play Tapper's question there, because we know from covering the show for so long the Tapper is all about morals. You know, what's right, what's wrong, this is this is immoral, that is immoral. And not always necessarily about like the results, the 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 facts on the ground, the realities. And it's very evident in this question because the problem here is that Jake Tapper is glomming onto this word moral and immoral. And yet people are talking past each other because the word means different things to different people, right? I mean, that guy Daniel Foote was saying that things are inhumane and counterproductive to send people back to Haiti where they might not have lived in 10 years and it's, you know, it's going through a crisis right now. Whereas the statement by Mayorkas is we do not conduct ourselves in an immoral way. Because Mayorkas, as we'll hear, is just following the rules and protocols he's told to follow. And you can follow those rules in a moral, you know, in a way that's not inhumane. And yet the policy that you're following might itself be, quote unquote, immoral. Some may deem it immoral. But it's like, it's such a, a, a squishy term, moral, immoral, that people can so easily talk past each other. And 
Let's take a listen a bit to that answer. Oh, so I, I respectfully uh, disagree with the uh, envoy's uh, position. And let me say a few things, if I may, because this administration, the Biden-Harris administration, has indeed rescinded the immoral, unethical and cruel policies. And we are rebuilding a system that has been entirely dismantled by the prior administration. With respect to the conditions in Haiti, we studied those conditions very carefully, and we made a determination several months ago that individuals resident in the United States who were from Haiti, who were unlawfully present, could not safely return there, and therefore we granted them temporary protected status. That applied to individuals who were already here in the United States on or before July 29th. Mm -hmm. We then continued to study the conditions in Haiti, as is our responsibility, and we made a determination based upon the facts that, in fact, individuals could be safely returned to Haiti. We work closely with the Haitian government, and we have provided $5.5 yeah. million dollars in humanitarian aid to assist in their humanitarian and safe return. So this is a good example of Secretary Mayorkas trying to get some specifics into the conversation where he's saying, look, if you say that it is inhumane to return people to Haiti, well, we actually looked at the actual conditions about whether it was safe or not safe. And we looked at those very closely and we made, you know, this determination versus that determination. So at least now we're talking about something tangible, which is the conditions in Haiti instead of words like inhumane or immoral. So I appreciate the intent to bring something more substantial into the conversation because you could just keep pointing left and right. Well, this is immoral and that is immoral. And it's like, what are we really talking about? What does it really mean for the people who are in these situations? What are the different options and what are our goals as a country? That's what's missing in this whole entire conversation. What are our goals as a country, as it relates to immigration, what do we want out of our immigration system? They, these are not really being discussed, these issues. But Tapper, again and again, goes back to, well, I think what's happening in this place is immoral, or what's happening in this place, like, these people are being treated immorally, or, or, you know, first it's the Haitians being treated immorally, and now he's concerned about the Border Patrol officers being treated unfairly. Take a listen to this question. Can the Border Patrol count on you and President Biden, who has said the people will pay, uh, to come to an, uh, a determination based on the facts and, and not based on Twitter outrage? They sure can. And let me say uh, something about that, Jake, because I've worked very closely with the men and women of U.S. Customs and Border Protection for many years, many, many years. And I, they are heroic, what they do. And I saw their heroism displayed in Del Rio, Texas, last Monday when I was there on the ground. And that is emblematic of who they are, their commitment to this country, their talent, and tireless dedication to mission. I'm incredibly proud uh, to work alongside them. Well, as you know, a lot of those uh, uh, agents on horseback, uh, they're on horse because there are no roads in so many parts of, of the border. and. A lot of them have saved the lives of migrants trying to cross the river. Uh, the nice words you said about them, you should probably share with President Biden, not just with the, 
not just with me today. Thank you so much for your time today. I mean, that's a bit over the top. I mean, Jake Tapper, like you mentioned, Brendan, often does this talking about what's right and what's wrong or what's moral or immoral or does it seem fair? Does it sit right with you? All these different kind of subjective judgment calls as opposed to the actual application of law and whether or not the laws and rules we have in the books are applicable to the immigration scenarios that we have before us. Right. Absolutely. And Jake Tapper here in his question, the the statement that he makes here, he says, can the Border Patrol count on you and President Biden to make a determination based on facts and not based on Twitter outrage? And what he's talking about is the determination about whether the agents who were pictured and videotaped on the border with those migrants, very controversially, whether those agents would have a fair hearing or whether they're just going to be potentially scapegoated and railroaded without having a proper airing of the facts of of what happened on the ground. Now, Mayorkas has already indicated, if not multiple times, at least once in the interview, that that there is going to be a fair hearing on that. But Tapper goes back to it. It's kind of to scold a little bit Biden and scold the DHS secretary for not standing up for these Border Patrol agents and for kind of throwing them under the bus before maybe a real investigation has been done. But I think it's also Tapper kind of saying, look, nobody's standing up for the these Border Patrol agents who work really hard. And I want to make sure that we acknowledge them for what they're doing. And so I'm going to ask this question. It, it, but it's not really, we're not learning anything as an audience here because there's not anything that he's asking that hasn't already been answered. And even more so, he's warning or scolding the DHS secretary for potentially admonishing these people, these officers, without kind of like a, a thorough investigation, which... A media critic <laughs> could say, could scold the journalist here, Jake Tapper. You are s- a media critic. Uh, why, thank you, Brendan. Uh, for saying you are basing this question, this part of your interview on Twitter theatrics rather than the actual claims or testimony of actual border patrol officers who feel like this was done unfairly or after some study that shows that officers feel like they're not being supported like you if he wanted to make this part of the interview that customs and border patrol officers are doing hard work and unappreciated maybe you should do some research to see how substantial that claim is, right. as opposed to leaning on what is whatever is trending on Twitter and how people feel about it. Like he's he's accusing the administration of possibly doing an investigation solely based off of Twitter theatrics, but you're putting your interview in Twitter theatrics as opposed to substantive, rigorous questions. The thing I agree with the most in what you said is is that he hasn't worked hard enough to work this into the interview in a in like a meaningful way, right? Yeah, absolutely. So where Jake Tapper was concerned with the morals of the situation, Chris Wallace was most concerned with why so many people are being able to get into the U.S., period. And he focused on that like nonstop in his entire coverage. And I want to begin with kind of the way Chris Wallace started by trying to drill down on how many of these migrants actually 
have been quote-unquote released into the U.S. And remember, there were about 30,000 of them to begin with, and there were many who were deported back and out of the country. But Wallace wants to know about all the others. But to answer my question directly, of the 17,400 that weren't deported back or didn't return on their own to Mexico, how many of them either, ha well, first, how many have been released into the U.S.? Uh, they're released on conditions, yes. and, and uh, approximately, I think it's about 10,000 or so, 12,000. Have been released? Yes. And of the 5,000 that are still in process? We will uh, make determinations whether they will be uh, returned uh, to uh, Haiti uh, based on our public health and public interest uh, authorities. So are we talking about a total of 12,000 or could it be even higher? It could, uh, it could be even higher. The number that are returned could be even higher. What we do is we follow the law as Congress has passed it. But let's drill down on more than 12,000 migrants who you say that you're going to keep surveillance over, but they are being released into this country. Uh, Chris, uh, that's what the law requires. I understand. If, if, in fact, someone is not expelled under the public health authority of the Centers for Disease Control, then they are placed in immigration enforcement proceedings. But they have an opportunity to make their claim for relief to a judge as the law requires. But let, I understand all of that, but let's talk about what's going to happen to those 12,000. Removal proceedings, including asylum cases, can take anywhere from six months to several years. And 44%, according to the Department of Justice, 44% of those who are released into custody or from custody miss their court hearings. It, just as a matter of reality, won't many of those thousands of people end up settling here in the United States, some of them permanently. So one of the things you'll see where Chris Wallace is going with this, and Chris Wallace clearly wants to have a very policy-based discussion on the topic, whereas Mayorkas is saying, look, that's what the law requires. We're following what the law is. This is what we're following all the rules. We're doing everything we're supposed to be doing within this agency. But Wallace keeps going here. And one thing that I think is missed a little bit and that I wished Mayorkas had brought up is exactly why those individuals in particular are provided that opportunity to make their asylum case to a judge. What makes them different from those who are deported? That would have been like a meaningful question to ask. And it probably would have been meaningful for the audience to learn that basically all single individuals are sent back and deported. Those who are not are families, unaccompanied minors, and those who have serious medical conditions that mean that they can't be sent back. So the people that are being talked about are families, children, and those with medical conditions. That's an really important piece of information when you're trying to understand who these 12,000, you know, migrants are who I guess we just have an image of them just like wandering into, you know, a town in Texas. It'd also be useful to know, like, wh what does that mean? What, what, where do they go? Who is there to help them? Where do they sleep? Oh, you know, what does this look like? But unfortunately, you know, Wallace is kind of quickly prosecuting his case, it feels like. And it's, it's at least, certainly Wallace has a, has a, 
direction that he's moving this conversation towards. But we are learning things here that were not at all brought up in the State of the Union conversation. Now, one thing that I have often complained about is when hosts ask extremely critical questions about a policy or position without bringing up what the possible alternative could be, right? Like the alternative is an important thing to bring up. And Chris Wallace, at least in multiple places in this conversation, brings up an alternative, a way that some might say the issue could have been resolved in a different way. Here is one such way that I think will be familiar to a lot of people. Bridge, you say 30,000 people walked across that dam into Del Rio in the last 17 days. Question, why didn't you stop them? Oh, so uh, we encounter them at the border. That's where we encounter them, Chris. And you know what? We saw, indeed, a large number of people across at one particular part of the border in a short period of time. And what did we do? We surged our resources. We surged our personnel. Why didn't didn't you stop them from coming into the country? We we did. We encountered them. Uh, They gathered, they assembled uh, in that one location in Del Rio, Texas, and we applied the laws. We applied the public health law under the CDC's authority, and we applied immigration law. My question is, why did you allow them in the country in the first place? Why didn't you build forgive me, a wall or a fence to stop them from walking in this flood of people coming across the dam. It looks like a highway that allows them to cross the Rio Grande. It is this pol- the policy of this administration. Uh, we do not agree with the building of the wall. The law provides that individuals can make a claim for humanitarian relief. That is actually one of our proudest traditions. So there's one alternative Chris Wallace has to the current policies, just build a wall. Very novel idea. What's strange about this question is that you could challenge the administration's readiness, maybe not specifically Del Rio, this specific dam that Chris Wallace seems very upset is was left vulnerable to for, for a, a mass encampment. But you could have like, why weren't there Custom Border Patrol who speak Creole in Texas since there was just a recent assassination and a hurricane. In Haiti. In Haiti, right. Or why hasn't there been a process identified to speed up the hearings of people who are eligible for it? Like, there's a way you can challenge the readiness without it being about, like, a freaking wall or, like, physical barrier. It's just, I, I don't want to say laziness, because I get upset with a lot of people, and I always call them <laughs> feel like I always call the host lazy but it just challenged the parts that they could be changing you know that could have been done in the last six months yeah I mean it sounds like Chris Wallace wanted them to build a fence around this particular area but it's like okay you could build a fence there but the border is thousands upon thousands of miles and as we know from the Trump era like There is no wall there, even though Trump wanted there to be a wall, because it's not easy to build a wall of that size. And as we've seen again and again, those walls are extremely easy for migrants to breach and get through. And then there's the humanitarian question. You know, if if you're standing at the other end of a desert and 30,000 people, including kids 
and families and the elderly and those who probably have a legal right to claim asylum are there and you just say sorry there's a wall here turn back but they don't have the food or the provisions or the ability to to do that safely then you could have you know 20,000 people dead in front of your wall is that what you want is that appropriate is that right so and then you say, okay, well, then we'll give them food, but they have to stay on that side of the wall. Okay, so then you have an entire encampment city built on the other side of your wall. And how long is that going to last? And how long until they breach the wall? Like, it is not a solution. It is not an honest, meaningful, thoughtful solution to the problem to just say, oh, well, we'll just stop them here. At some point, you're going to have to confront what's going on there and recognize, as Majorca says, that the law does provide that individuals can make a claim for humanitarian relief. And that's that's what I mean by why is nobody talking about what our role is as a country and our position on immigration in this country? Like, what do we want as a country? Our country faces a real crisis over the next few decades as more and more Americans get older and fewer and fewer young Americans have kids that we do not have potentially a system where there are enough taxpayers to support the elderly who are going to need lots and lots of services. They're going to need their social security. And who's going to be paying for that? The young people. Well, there's not enough young people. So what do you need? You need immigrants. If you don't, your entire country is not only going to suffer in the sense of not maybe necessarily being able to provide all the social services you need to provide, but it's not going to be a dynamic economy anymore. And if you want an example of that, there have been plenty of examples or, or plenty of stories written about what's going on in Japan right now. And the U.S. faces that that hurdle. And by the way, that has been the history of this country, is young immigrants coming into this country. So I don't know why nobody can actually confront the real conversation of what is the proper role of immigration in this country. You can't just say, well, we're just going to put up walls. There, There is a meaningful role for immigrants to have, and our system, which needs to be reformed, needs to grapple with that. And the final thing that Chris Wallace brings up as a possible alternative is this. Finally, you talked earlier about the fact that allowing people to come into this country to make a claim of asylum is the law. But in fact, and you know this well, sir, more than a month ago, the Supreme Court overruled the idea that the, this administration had unilaterally decided to rescind President Trump, former President Trump's remain in Mexico policy that people had to wait in Mexico while making their claim of asylum. They, they made that ruling more than a month ago. Why have you failed to comply with the Supreme Court's ruling to reinstate remain in Mexico? So it is a district court ruling. It's a no, federal. No, no, it's a Supreme it's a, Court ruling. Uh, well, the, the Supreme Court made a determination on the injunction, but we can talk about the law another time. But let me say this, that we are complying with the court's order. We do have an obligation to implement uh, the migrant protection protocols, uh, and we are negotiating with Mexico because those protocols require a bilateral agreement. And so we are negotiating with Mexico as we are required to do under the court's order. So we're kind of running out of time here, but I do want to point out listeners or viewers might disagree with the critical questions poking holes in the Biden administration's policies, and they certainly bring up alternatives to those policies that were based in some of Trump's decision-making. 
But I do appreciate that Chris Wallace is having a serious conversation on the issue. He is bringing up major points that were not brought up, at least in the Tapper interview that I heard. And it is leading to, in many respects, a pretty engaging conversation with Secretary Mayorkas. Now, there are tons of issues that were not addressed really in either of these interviews, or at least to a very little extent, the actual people involved who are, you know, the refugees, where they are, what they're doing. I raised a number of those questions earlier in the conversation. So neither of these interviews provide a really solid grounding or a full understanding of the events, but they at least raise a lot of interesting questions. Just a couple final thoughts. I think Mayorkas does as good of a job as he can. One, I think he had a very different range of interviews. He was also on Meet the Press, and I can't remember if he was on another one as well. And each of the interviews kind of had a very different focus because, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Brendan, it's one, such a complex issue, but two, when you're not focusing so much on what the law allows or disallows or how much of it is outdated or no longer applies or how much the infrastructure of our immigration system can no longer manage to adequately process the law in a reasonable way. Yeah, like, yeah. There's so many different ways that the system is failing both Americans and migrants that it seems like they're not focusing on anything and instead focusing on these kind of challenges of having a wall or not to have a wall or a proper investigation for border patrol officers or not. Like when you're losing the moment to actually challenge the DHS secretary to do something. And you hear a lot, Mayorga, saying like, these are the laws that we have until Congress passes something. Right. Well, what would you want Congress to do? Yeah, that What would, would have be been the solution for this situation? Great question. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your point, that's another thing that's not brought up is like, it sounds like Chris Wallace is very critical of the idea that all of these individuals are being released into the country and that some of them might not have hearings in a very long time and therefore they can disappear. Well, why don't we ask, why can't the judge make a determination sooner than that, right? Like, why is it taking so long? What is going on with our system? How did it get that way? How do we fix it? What are the proposals out there? Can we kind of like go deeper on some of those issues as well? Because those, those sorts of things are what makes this process so excruciating. And what makes, you know, Mayorkas and these Border Patrol agents jobs super hard as well. You know, they have to keep track of all these migrants and try to bring them back after such a a long delay. Fundamentally, it would be great for Chris Wallace to have a conversation similar to this with somebody who can speak in the policy language of the Biden administration, right? Mayorkas is very much, look, I'm just doing my job. I'm following the laws, um, following what I'm told to do. It, It reminds me a lot of Chris Wallace's interview with the head of FEMA a few weeks ago where Chris Wallace really wanted to get into all these questions about climate change. And she was just like, I can just tell you what FEMA knows, and I'm not an expert in climate change. To the same extent, Chris Wallace wants to get into all these questions about like immigration policy, but he's talking to someone basically in charge of enforcement of that policy, not the policy itself. Or the development of that policy. Exactly. All right, Naomi, let's get to your segment, which is about policy. 
not immigration policy. So I wanted to talk about infrastructure. It seems after many, many weeks, this is the big week or a big week, <laughs> to put it more more likely. Yeah. It's like every week is a big week. <laughs> exactly. Supposedly, the House is supposed to vote on the infrastructure bill. Nancy Pelosi has promised to consider it. You know, she is a master at her very precise promises. So we'll see what actually is voted on. I mean, I think there was a letter written and shared with Democrats that I think they're technically going to vote on it Thursday, I think is like the, the latest timeline. But that wasn't. That wasn't on the shows. That wasn't on the show. That came later this this Sunday evening. But she actually was on this week talking to George Stephanopoulos. This is purely kind of my own recollection. But Nancy Pelosi is often on this week. Sometimes she talks to Dana Bash on State of the Union. But those are like her two jams. George Stephanopoulos and Dana Bash, I think. She is on this week more than I think any other show. Yeah, I can't I can't remember her on Meet the Press, frankly. I think once she talked to Margaret Brennan, because there was Margaret Brennan and Liz Cheney, and there was a whole comment about how they're both moms of five, which I thought was very sassy. But anyway, it was a great booking by the This Week team to have Nancy Pelosi on. And (laughs) this is when Nancy Pelosi shines at political messaging in very fraught weeks. Anyone who wants to be a speaker, i.e. Kevin McCarthy, should really look at how she does it. She does it very effectively. Listen to here in the kind of top of the interview with George Stephanopoulos when she clarifies that this is Biden's package, this is Biden's agenda, and for the most part, Democrats are unified on this effort. But I thank you for calling this President Biden's agenda because that's exactly what it is. This is the vision of the president, and he has said uh, that while he wants to pass the infrastructure bill, and we will, uh, that he will not confine his vision for the future to just that bill, that it had to be about building back better. And building back better has the support of over 95% of our caucus. So when you say Democrats divide it, no. Overwhelmingly, I've never seen actually over 95% of the caucus just about for anything. Uh, there are some who disagree, and I respect that about the size of the package, and, and so some in the Senate, a couple in the Senate as, well, Senate as well, and we have to find our common ground, respectful of each other's views. But this isn't about moderates versus progressives. Overwhelmingly, the entirety of our caucus, except for a few whose judgment I respect, uh, uh, support the vision of Joe Biden, and we will make progress on it this week. So make progress, not necessarily pass. You said you have support of 95% of Democrats. The problem is you need 98 or 99% uh, to pass pass the bills. So very sly, coy messaging here. Again, this is Biden's agenda. Very clearly, you know, letting the president own this package, right? Who wants to say they're against Biden's agenda? I mean, what Democrat wants to say that? She also says 95% of the caucus supports the Build Back Better. She makes great effort to say she respects those who disagree, <laughs> even though if I was her, I'd be like... Respects their judgment, even. Not just respects them, respects their judgment. God, I wish you could say how she really felt. But she makes it clear here. They, they've come a long way, and the next few steps are going to be challenging, but that they can do this. I didn't include the kind of back and forth here, 
But she talks about how like this is the legislative process and that they're going to have to essentially negotiate within the party. But she does something here that she has expressed before that instead of talking about dollar amounts, that they should be talking about values, about priorities. Like what are the things that Democrats want to see stay in the bill? I know the Budget Committee passed a resolution calling for $3.5 trillion, but it sounds like you acknowledge that the final number is going to be somewhat smaller than that. Yeah. I mean, that seems self-evident. That seems self-evident. And so it's, it's not just um, we have some, uh, shall we say, birdbath, pr- privilege, you know, kinds of things. It's legislation. So the fact is, is that this is the excitement of it all. It's just in real time and uh, exploitation of a few people not in agreement being called a division in the Democratic Party. Everybody, overwhelmingly, and I think even those who want a smaller number, support the vision of the president. And this is really transformative. It's transformative for women when you think about child care and child tax credit and family medical leave and universal pre-K and home health care. How, how, how much in agreement are we all on that? When you talk about the climate crisis, which we have a responsibility, again, to the children, but to our faith to protect God's creation, this planet, uh, how, how much uh, can we, do you want to spend on that? So that adding up what our priorities are should take us to a number where we find common ground. Can we shorten the time or some other things to make this number smaller? That's our discussion yes. now, but we're ready for it. Very interesting that she had in the beginning and the closing of that answer that it's going to be less dollars and perhaps they're going to achieve that by reducing the amount of time that they're funding it for, not necessarily reducing the things they are funding. Right. And which we've seen with the Affordable Care Act. Once you give people resources, once you give people a benefit, a public benefit, it's a hell of a lot harder to take it away later. But again, I like that she kind of centers it in the priorities and values because time and time again, Democrats have requested the conversation to be centered on that. But we see over and over again, the journalists asking, how much is it going to cost? How much is it going to cost? Manchin won't agree to 3.5. What the hell are you going to do? Like, that's the only question they know how to do as opposed to analyzing, saying, okay, well, you know, this program costs a half a drill, would you be willing to cut this one to make room? Like, no one has talked about that. Again, we focus so much on the Sunday shows. They could be happening elsewhere. But the party that has power in the White House, House, and Senate cannot have a conversation, a national conversation that they would like to have because it keeps focusing purely on the total dollar amount. Well, it makes you think that, like, if the Democrats were all on board and they had just quickly passed this bill, which would be a very big deal there would be so much less conversation about it than there is now when the bill might very well not pass at all it's like well does that make sense really should we be like just overall for the media's sake like are you as the media presenting meaningful information to the american public if the reality might be that you are covering something way more when it fails than when it succeeds and if it succeeds it has a much greater impact on people's lives it's it's very interesting to just i mean obviously that's just how the media works is is friction and these sorts of issues but there's so much more as pelosi notes in the bill 
than what is actually being talked about. By the way, I do, I do appreciate her. The fact is that this is the excitement of it all. <laughs> she loves. She this loves. Stuff. She lives for this. <laughs> it's like I just could just see someone being like, "Oh my god, what does she have on her shoulders?" And she's just like, "I love it. I I love the pressure. I love when it matters." Yeah. Another example of this where the conversation is focused on dollars and the Democrat is trying to center it on values and priorities was on Face the Nation when Margaret Brennan talked to Representative Pramila Jayapal, a Democratic congresswoman from Washington state. I thought the congresswoman had a really effective answer as to talking about the programs and benefits that could impact people's lives. And we should be talking about which one of those are, quote unquote, more worth it? When it comes to the things that you have to prioritize, um, what about free community college? Uh, the president threw that out as an example yeah. and mentioned means testing, adjusting for cost of living and, and things like that. Are you open to that? We're open to whatever negotiation is out there. But on means testing, we saw what happened when we put in tons of barriers in the rental assistance program. People didn't get it. If you have a 25-page document that somebody has to go through to figure out mm -hmm. whether or not they qualify, the most vulnerable are not going to get the assistance they need. So I think we should be universal in our programs, make sure people get the benefits immediately, and make it as easy as possible to get this assistance out to the people who need it the most. And the rest of that sentence is, and the largest corporations. You see the push and pull here, right? You, <laughs> Margaret Brennan, I think it's like at least two times saying, well, then what price are you willing to take? Or what's it going to go down to? And the congresswoman keeps saying, well, let's talk about what we are, what our values are, or, you know, do we want childcare? Do we want paid family leave? Do we want climate change mitigations? Do we want housing? Like sh they're, they're having separate conversations and they eat, they each try to invite the other and, and they, neither will budge. It's a very interesting dichotomy. Yeah. It just seems like I guess in Margaret Brennan's mind, the conversation is two people are working from numbers and Brennan wants to know what's under Jayapal's, you know, scrawled sheet of paper that's been folded up right in the middle of, of it. And Jayapal's saying that's not actually how this negotiation is going. It's not about numbers. It's about what those numbers represent. And we need to have conversations about those things so we can figure out what the number is. But then at the same time, Bernie Sanders, when he's been on the Sunday shows in the past, has been like, we're not going down any lower than 3.5 trillion. That's the number, 100%. You know, we already went down from 6 trillion. Now we're, now we're down to 3.5. We're done going down. It is going to be 3.5. So he takes a very different approach to the conversation. But so he's not Congresswoman Jayapal. And yes. he's not, certainly hell not Nancy Pelosi. And like, have the conversation that's in front of you. Yes. So I just wanted to share one last clip, and this was actually from Meet the Press when Chuck Todd talked to Senator Cory Booker, and it was a very interesting moment in which Senator Booker, it's not his skepticism that comes out, but his insistence, the, the reasoning behind his insistence that things must be passed now is, is very interesting, and kind of whether or not progressives and moderates in the Democratic Party can make this happen and how much timing has to do with it. It looks like distrust from from my perspective in that you wrote this letter along with uh, 10 other senators. It's reinforced this idea. Hey, don't bring up the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the House until 
the, the larger reconciliation bill is done. Um, why can't you trust centrists or moderates, or however we want to classify the folks, um, that they'll be there? Why not pass this on Monday? Put some points on the scoreboard for President Biden, uh, which right now helps the whole party, and trust that the moderates will be there for this? I don't think it's a matter of trust. I think it's a matter of I've been around here, this town now for eight years, watching the best of intentions not manifest into something real. Uh, we were told that this was we see this as one package. The president, as recently as last week, has said, don't separate this. This is one package that we're looking at. And so I just want to make sure this is not about a bunch of people who are battling it out in Congress. This is about the American people. And to get half of this done and leave uh, mothers who are looking for affordable child care, Americans who are looking for lower-cost prescription drugs, uh, to leave people like that on the wayside, uh, uh, families that need that child tax credit, uh, uh, to leave those folks on the wayside is un- unacceptable to me. So I've seen the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. I want a more uh, real guarantee. Well, I, I, you just don't believe the word's not enough? No, again. I mean, that's what it comes down to. No, basically I, saying that the, Joe Manchin's word's not enough here. Look, I have been looked in the eye by people in this town, and they meant it sincerely. There was honor in them saying it. Hey, Corey, we're not going to get this in such and such a bill, but we'll get to it. Well, sometimes that get to it turns out to be a year, the next Congress or what have you. Uh, I'm sorry. When you have the leverage, you use the leverage, as long as it's not about ego or partisanship. uh, For me, it's about the communities in this country. So it's not just Democrats in the House who are obstinate and demanding this package be prioritized, you have senators saying, this is important, you need to stick with it. And I mean, (laughs) Cory Booker is like, (laughs) like it reminds me of of during the campaign, which is like, he's too nice for this, right? He's he's trying to say, shit doesn't happen, and we have the moment, and we have to do it. Right, but he's saying it in the nicest way possible. In the nicest way possible. You can look in my eye and and say it sincerely. But you're a liar. <laughs> and believe it. But guess what? It's never going to happen. Because you're full of it. <laughs> I feel like, you know how there was like the anger translator during Obama? <laughs> you need to have like... Cory Booker's the, Yeah, Cory Booker's nice translation. <laughs> That'd be a great Key and Peele comeback episode. Well, and you know the, the premise of the, of the whole thing, right? Of that whole skit is that a black man can't be honest about. I know exactly. How he feels. It still applies, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's another example of it. Well, even though the week is, as George Stephanopoulos quoted to Nancy Pelosi, daunting, I think their messaging has really improved the last few weeks, and I think the stakes are pretty clear. And it should be interesting to see how the negotiations move forward from here. Yeah, absolutely. It's. I mean, that's the as Pelosi said, excitement of it all. We shall see. And it'll make for an interesting episode next week on Polylog. But before we get to next week, let's get to the dialogue challenge today. And how about the, this be the challenge? And that is try to make sure that the person you're having the conversation with, even if they're using the same words, that they, they're actually talking about the same thing. This brings me back to like the morals discussion that we heard with Jake Tapper where very clearly Majorcus was talking about what was moral and moral in a very different way than Jake Tapper or his critics were talking about it. And it literally meant something totally different, but they were both using the same word. And that can lead to lots of confusion and not necessarily a lot of understanding. Absolutely. Stop wasting everyone's time and get on the... Well, I I just mean it. Like, 
if you're having a discussion and using the same terms but with different definitions, it's gonna take forever until you figure out what each person means. So cut it out and just get to the specifics. The specifics of it all. Here we go. And you're welcome to email us any specifics any you'd specifics. like. You can email us non-specifics. We yeah. welcome that too. That. <laughs> You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Beastidal on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Naomi underscore. And you can always follow the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.